Welcome to the September 1st, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we review results of a randomized, placebo-controlled Phase three trial demonstrating that targeted inhibition of C1S with the monoclonal antibody sutimlimab is effective and well-tolerated in non-transfusion-dependent patients with cold agglutinin disease. We'll also review a population-based study evaluating the impact of adding either etoposide or autologous stem cell transplantation to CHOP in young and fit patients with peripheral T-cell lymphomas. Finally, we'll review a paper that elucidates a mechanism of lung injury in sickle cell disease. It involves gas dermin D-dependent production of neutrophil extracellular traps in the liver, which travel intravascularly to the lung, where they promote occlusion of the pulmonary microcirculation. Let's start with the research article entitled, Sutimlimab in Patients with Cold Agglutinin Disease. Results of the Randomized, Placebo-Controlled Phase three Cadenza Trial. The first author is Alexander Roth of the University of Duisburg-Essen in Essen, Germany. Cold agglutinin disease, or CAD, is a rare autoimmune hemolytic anemia mediated by activation of the classical complement pathway. In patients with CAD, preferential binding of IgM autoantibodies, cold agglutinins, to the I-antigen on erythrocytes at temperatures of 37 degrees Celsius or lower can cause agglutination of erythrocytes. This agglutination causes patients with CAD to experience chronic hemolysis, leading to anemia, fatigue, and jaundice, all of which are complement-mediated symptoms. They may also experience non-complement-mediated symptoms that can be induced by cold temperatures, including acrocyanosis and Raynaud's phenomenon. Ultimately, CAD increases risk of thromboembolism and early mortality and is associated with depression, anxiety, and reduced quality of life. Until recently, there were no FDA-approved therapies for CAD. Rituximab induces partial responses in about half of patients. However, these responses are delayed and generally last less than a year. Adding cytotoxic agents to rituximab boosts response rates, but also increases the incidence of severe toxic effects. Involvement of the classical complement pathway has sparked interest in the use of complement inhibitors to treat CAD, particularly after the success of the complement factor C5 inhibitor, eculizumab, in other diseases, including paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. In a Phase two study in CAD, eculizumab did reduce lactate dehydrogenase levels and transfusion dependence. However, only moderate improvements in hemoglobin were seen, probably because the treatment does not inhibit extravascular hemolysis. That contrasts with sutimlimab, a monoclonal antibody that selectively inhibits the classical complement pathway at C1S. C1S is the modular serine protease, which executes the catalytic function of the C1 complex, the cleavage of C4 and C2. In a single-arm, open-label Phase three study, 26 weeks of treatment with sutimlimab led to a rapid and sustained clinical improvement in patients with CAD who had a recent history of blood transfusions. The treatment increased hemoglobin levels, normalized bilirubin, reduced use of transfusions, and improved fatigue. In February of this year, sutimlimab became the first FDA-approved treatment for CAD. 
The present study by Roth and colleagues, called Cadenza, is a randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial of sutimlimab in patients with CAD. Investigators excluded patients who had a blood transfusion within six months of screening and those who had more than one transfusion within 12 months. All patients had a hemoglobin less than 10, above normal bilirubin, and ferritin above the lower limit of normal. Patients were randomized one-to-one to to receive sutimlimab or placebo for 26 weeks. Treatment was administered intravenously on day 0, 7, and then every 14 days. The primary efficacy endpoint was a composite of hemoglobin improvement of at least 1.5 grams per deciliter from baseline to the treatment assessment time point, absence of blood transfusions from week 5 to 26, and no use of protocol-prohibited CAD medications from week 5 to 26. 42 patients were randomized, including 22 who received sutimlimab and 20 who received placebo. Nearly 80% were female. The median age was 66 years. At baseline, mean hemoglobin levels were 9.2 and 9.3 grams per deciliter in the treatment and placebo arms, respectively. The composite primary endpoint was met for 16 out of 22 patients in the sutimlimab arm, or about 73%. By contrast, only 3 of 20 placebo-treated patients, or 15%, met the primary endpoint. Overall, sutimlimab-treated patients were more likely to achieve the response criteria, with an odds ratio of 15.9, a 95% confidence interval of 2.9 to 88.0, and a p-value less than 0.001. Fatigue also improved among sutimlimab-treated patients. By the first week of treatment, the mean facet fatigue score had improved by 5 points, an improvement that was clinically meaningful. By contrast, there was no change in the mean facet fatigue score in the placebo group. Adverse events seen more frequently in the sutimlimab arm included headache, hypertension, rhinitis, Raynaud's phenomenon, and acrocyanosis. A total of eight patients, or 36%, experienced treatment-associated adverse events thought to be related to sutimlimab treatment, while four patients, or 20%, experienced treatment-associated adverse events thought to be related to placebo administration. Treatment-associated serious adverse events in the sutimlimab arm included febrile infection, and increased blood IgM in one patient, Raynaud's phenomenon in another patient, and cerebral venous thrombosis in a third. In a commentary, Satish Shanat of Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and Sean R. Stoll of Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, said the current study provides insights into the mechanisms of proximal complement pathway inhibition and demonstrates how prompt treatment with a complement inhibitor may be beneficial in CAD. Although rates of infection in the study were similar between the treatment and placebo arms, Shanat and Stoll said providers need to be cautious when treating patients with this monoclonal antibody. There is a need for real-world data, they added, to better define the risks and benefits of sutimlimab in CAD. Further studies are also needed to better define which of these patients would be most likely to benefit from the treatment. Ultimately, they said, a strategy to inhibit proximal complement activation is another avenue that may be beneficial beyond CAD. In other diseases with complement involvement that exhibit modest response to terminal complement inhibition. Let's review the next research article, titled 
Impact of Etoposide and ASCT on Survival Among Patients Less Than 65 Years with Stage 2 to 4 PTCL, a population-based cohort study. And the first author is Mirian Brink of the Netherlands Comprehensive Cancer Organization in Utrecht. The peripheral T-cell lymphomas, or PTCLs, are a heterogeneous group of neoplasms with a generally poor prognosis. The most common PTCL subtypes are anaplastic large-cell lymphoma, or ALCL, angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, or AITL, and peripheral T-cell lymphoma not otherwise specified, abbreviated PTCL-NOS. The five-year median overall survival for PTCL is around 30%, though one exception to that is ALK-positive ALCL, which has a median five-year overall survival exceeding 70% in multiple studies. For decades, the standard of care for PTCL has been the CHOP regimen of cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisone. Although most patients achieve complete remission with first-line CHOP, the three-year overall survival for those who progress or relapse after CHOP therapy is less than 10%, owing to a lack of effective second-line treatments. Several new strategies have been tested in an attempt to improve outcomes including the addition of etoposide to CHOP and the use of myeloablative autologous stem cell transplantation, or ASCT, for consolidation after a first CR. Although these strategies are used in many patients with PTCL, there is generally a lack of data from large randomized trials in a homogeneous patient population to confirm their benefit. Both the addition of etoposide and the use of ASCT after induction chemotherapy were widely adopted in the Netherlands starting in 2009. Thus, Brink and co-investigators sought to determine the impact of adding etoposide to CHOP and consolidation with ASCT in first-line treatment in younger patients with PTCL treated in that country. The data, obtained from the population-based Netherlands Cancer Registry, included adult patients under 65 years of age with one of the major PTCL subtypes and stage 2 to 4 disease. The primary endpoint of the study was overall survival, measured as the time from diagnosis to either death from any cause or last date of follow-up. Of 1,427 patients identified, 62% were male, and the median age was 52 years. 35% of the patients had an ALCL diagnosis, 21% AITL, and 44% PTCL-NOS. Looking more closely at those diagnosed with ALCL in 2008 or later, 60% were ALK-positive, 39% ALK-negative, and 1% status unknown. Use of antineoplastic therapy was consistent over time, given to about 90% of patients prior to 2009 and 92% after 2009. Use of ASCT increased significantly from just 5% in the earlier period to 31% in the 2009 or later period. Overall survival increased significantly over time. In the era before addition of etoposide and ASCT, the five-year overall survival was 39%, compared to 49% in the etoposide and ASCT era, with a p-value less than 0.001. Although the five-year survival was superior for the addition of etoposide to CHOP versus CHOP alone, risk of mortality was similar between the groups after adjusting for a PTCL subtype. IPI score, and the use of ASCT. The one exception was the subgroup of patients with ALK-positive ALCL. 
In that group, the risk of mortality was considerably higher for those treated with just CHOP as opposed to CHOP and etoposide, with a hazard ratio of 6.3, a 95% confidence interval of 1.65 to 24.3, and a p-value less than 0.01. Among patients receiving ASCT consolidation, the five-year overall survival was 78%, compared to just 45% for patients who did not receive ASCT consolidation, with a p-value less than 0.01. In a sensitivity analysis looking just at the patients with or without ASCT who achieved complete remission, ASCT was again superior, with a five-year overall survival of 82% compared to 47% for no ASCT. The five-year overall survival was also apparently superior for ASCT versus no ASCT in each of the three subgroups, ALCL, AITL, and PTCLNOS, though investigators cautioned that the numbers in each group were small. In a commentary, Julie Vose of the University of Nebraska Medical Center said that the survival benefit of ASCT in this study is very convincing, owing to the large number of patients with the caveat that a study based on population-based cancer registry data is not a prospective randomized trial. Nevertheless, Vose said, these real-world data heavily favor ASCT in first complete remission for eligible patients and support its use in common types of PTCL studied here. She added that ASCT in first complete remission may also be a potential option for patients over 65 years of age some of whom will be transplant-eligible and may also benefit. Vose said that science-driven analysis and appropriately designed clinical trials may reveal targeted therapies to improve outcomes among patients with PTCL. But until then, ASCT in first complete remission should be considered for all eligible patients based on the available data from this registry. The final article in today's podcast is entitled Liver-to-Lung Microembolic Nets Promote Gastermin-D-Dependent Inflammatory Lung Injury in Sickle Cell Disease, or SCD, by Ravi Vats and co-authors at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Microvascular obstruction is a central feature of SCD involving multiple intercellular interactions of blood cells and the endothelium. Acute vaso-occlusive episodes are painful and constitute the primary reason why patients with SCD are hospitalized. These episodes frequently precede acute chest syndrome, a type of lung injury that is one of the leading causes of mortality in patients with SCD. The development of acute chest syndrome is associated with occlusion of lung arterioles by aggregates of neutrophils, platelets, and erythrocytes. Therapies that can treat pulmonary vaso-occlusion and thereby prevent lung injury are badly needed. One potential target is P-selectin, an adhesion molecule expressed on the surface of endothelial cells and platelets under inflammatory conditions, which can trigger intercellular adhesion and vaso-occlusion in SCD. Treatment with an anti-P-selectin antibody has been shown to provide partial protection from pulmonary vaso-occlusion in SCD mice and reduced hospitalization by about 50% among SCD patients in the randomized, placebo-controlled, phase 2 sustained trial. However, it is likely that P-selectin is not the only driver of pulmonary vaso-occlusion in SCD. That leads us to the present study by Vats and colleagues, who reveal a new mechanism underlying pulmonary vaso-occlusion 
and also provide experimental evidence that blockade of the mechanism may have therapeutic potential. Their investigations, published in the current edition of Blood, utilize high-resolution intravital or live animal microscopy in SCD mice, as well as imaging flow cytometry of blood from human SCD patients. The results show for the first time that the sterile inflammatory milieu of SCD promotes caspase 4 or 11-dependent activation of neutrophil gastermin D. Activation of neutrophil gastermin D triggers shedding of neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs, in the microcirculation of the liver. Those liver nets then travel intravascularly to the lung, promoting vasoocclusion that is independent of P-selectin. It's known that in patients with SCD, polymerization of mutant hemoglobin promotes ischemia reperfusion injury and hemolysis. Further, byproducts of hemolysis, such as oxygenated hemoglobin, have been shown to promote sterile inflammation by themselves. In the present study, the investigators used intravenous administration of oxyhemoglobin to trigger vasoocclusive crises. Interestingly, the investigators found that in SCD mice, intravenous oxyhemoglobin promoted accumulation of nets in pulmonary arterioles, and that this accumulation of nets was a major factor in causing lung vasoocclusion and subsequent injury to lung tissue. Using state-of-the-art live imaging, the investigators showed that the nets entered the lung through the pulmonary arterioles. That suggested that these nets had a non-pulmonary vascular origin. Subsequently, the investigators discovered that the nets had been shed primarily by neutrophils in the liver microcirculation, and then transported to the lung, where they promoted pulmonary vasoocclusion. Some additional and important mechanistic insights were also provided in the article appearing in Blood. They identified upregulated type 1 interferon signaling in the neutrophils of SCD mice and humans. Also upregulated were the pro-inflammatory enzyme caspase 11, the ortholog to human caspase 4, as well as gastermin D, both of which were undetectable in control mice. Caspase activation causes cleavage of gastermin D, which can then form pores in the cell membrane, leading to cell damage or death. Investigators also assessed the in vivo effect of inhibiting gastermin D using specific inhibitors and in gastermin D deficient mice. Inhibition of gastermin D prevented shedding of nets from neutrophils in the liver and the liver to lung embolization of circulating nets, and also prevented lung vasoocclusion. The impact on lung vasoocclusion was independent of P selectin. In SCD P selectin knockout mice infused with oxygenated hemoglobin, P-selectin deficiency resulted in a reduction of pulmonary vasoocclusion of about 50%, but when a gastermin D inhibitor was added, the reduction was another threefold greater. In a commentary, Lydiane S. Torres of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Bronx, New York, and Andreas Hidalgo of Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven said that these findings could help explain the incomplete efficacy of anti-P-selectin therapies in patients with SCD. The findings not only improve our understanding of vasoocclusive pathophysiology, Torres and Hidalgo said, but may inspire new therapeutic approaches for the prevention of these episodes and secondary complications in SCD patients. Despite the availability of several FDA-approved drugs to treat SCD, disease complications, variable patient response, and end-organ damage remain challenging when these agents are used as monotherapy. To manage complex SCD pathology, multidrug approaches may be needed to target multiple instigating pathways, as shown in the study by Vats and co-authors. 
It is therefore urgent, Torres and Hidalgo concluded, to conduct translational research not only in SCD, but also in other diseases of the circulatory system, where similar mechanisms of intravascular immune activation and thromboinflammatory dissemination may be at play. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.